following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. In his October 16, 2008 internet update called Flash Traffic, Joel Rosenberg writes, The United States is experiencing the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression. Our enemies know it, they smell blood in the water. Well, let me tell you, my friends, our enemies do know it and they are gloating over it. Let me just share with you what uh, some have said about what is happening to our economy. U.S. foes gloat over financial crisis. Iran hails world financial crisis as end of capitalism. We are witnessing, a Hamas leader said, we are witnessing the collapse of the American empire. And another top Iranian cleric said, we are happy that the United States is in anarchy and the anarchy is reaching Europe. They are seeing the result of their own ugly doings and Allah is punishing them. We are living in uncertain and frightening times. If you put your money in the bank, they pay you little or no interest. And if you invest in mutual funds of the stock market, it's like riding a roller coaster. Bill Clinton had it right when he said, it's the economy, stupid. Consider some recent financial developments. I mean, we just need to go back just a few months. One newspaper article said, Wall Street stocks plunged Wednesday in the second biggest single-day point loss in history and their worst percentage fall in two decades. Ravaged by fears, the world's biggest economy is slipping into recession. Another paper said, we are living through financial history of the tragic kind. As of Friday's close, America's stock market had declined in value by well over 40% compared to a year ago. Another, Washington Post, actually, or actually this is Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, U.S. stocks in recent days have plunged the most since the crash of 1987, hammered by the biggest drop in retail sales in three years, and growing doubt that plans to bail out banks will keep the economic slump from deepening. Washington Post, U.S. forces nine major banks to accept partial nationalization. Reuters, the White House said G8 leaders were expected to meet this year on the worst financial crisis since the 1930s Great Depression. It's bad out there. And it may get worse before it gets better. But it has been worse. My dad was born in 1910 and was a young adult when the Great Depression hit. And you know, like so many others who went through the Depression, it marked him for life. When younger farmers were buying land and building new barns and purchasing new tractors and equipment and going deeper and deeper into debt, Dad stayed the course with what he had, always refusing to go into debt. My dad never had a credit card. He would scrape and save and pay cash for his vehicles. He had our old Farmall H tractor overhauled again and again rather than buy a new one. We as a family never went out to eat. In fact, he thought my wife and I were spendthrifts when we did. 
My dad was a very frugal man, uh, very tight with money. In fact, uh, when I went to college, I was the first one in my family to go to college, and uh, you would have thought my dad would have helped out a little bit with that, but he never did. Not that he was under obligation to do so, but you just would have thought naturally he would have. But my mother, when we would come home from college, my mother would often come up to me privately and slip $20 in my pocket, and she'd say, use this for gas, but don't tell your dad I gave it to you. <laughs> well, friends... It is going to get worse. The Bible does not tell us about world economic conditions prior to the rapture of the church, but it does tell us that during the tribulation period, the economy is going to be characterized by the following. First of all, depression. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the sixth chapter. Revelation chapter six. And during the third seal, verses five and six, we read, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. One translation renders verse 6, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. The English Standard Version of the Bible, uh, which, by the way, appears to be a rather good translation, but if you buy the study Bible, be very careful because the notes are decidedly reformed and covenant, certainly not dispensational. But the ESV Study Bible has a note which says, and I quote, the rider on the black horse carries scales or measuring grains for measuring grains and their prices. A heavenly voice comments on the scale significance, citing inflated grain prices eight to ten times normal. Siege and disruption of commercial routes will produce scarcity, driving prices up. The tribulation period from its onset will affect worldwide food supplies and worldwide financial stability. Money will become worthless. Inflation will dominate. I remember living through the Carter era. I bought a new car. It was a Buick Skylark. And we got a very special deal on financing, 13.8%, and that was a bargain. That's what it's going to be like during the tribulation. But not only will there be depression, but depression will be followed by a dictatorship. Turn to Revelation chapter 13 in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 13. And pick it up at verses 16 and 17. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The world is going to be plunged into financial chaos. There seemingly will be no answers. A world ruler is going to emerge and he is going to have solutions, at least on a temporary basis, for mankind's problems. 
He will secure peace in the Middle East, promising to be Israel's protector, but in reality we know that he will become Israel's persecutor. He will also take charge and control of the world's economy, promising to take care of those who will take his mark and give him their allegiance. The Prime Minister of Great Britain says that it's time now to build a global society. British Prime Minister Gordon Brown says that the international financial crisis has given world leaders a unique opportunity to create a truly global society and that the United States and Europe are keys to forging a new world order. Brown went on to say that the United States and Europe can and must provide leadership to lead the global effort to build a stronger and more just international order at this unique time in the global age. He said that terrorism, extremism, the global economy, and tackling poverty and disease are among the challenges that world leaders face today, which a new global society, a new world order can help fix. Tony Blair has been considered to become the uh, president of the European Union. And some time ago he said he would be interested, but he would have a condition. If he accepted the presidency of the European Union, he wanted unlimited powers, unlimited authority to fix all of the problems. Russia, China, African nations, Arab nations, Europe, they're all saying, we need a new global currency, a global government, and out of that, my friends, will come a global dictator. Recently, the Pope called upon the world to consider a new global economic order. We are rapidly moving toward it. Isn't it amazing, during our current economic crisis, how quickly we have allowed Washington to take control of so much? The banks, the auto industry, and on and on it seems to be going. Well, there will be depression, there will be dictatorship, and there will be absolute destruction. Revelation 18 portrays the collapse of the world economic order. This is the result of far more than poor fiscal policy. It is the result of divine judgment. Revelation 18 introduces us to what we would call commercial or political Babylon. Let me just mention three views on the identity of uh, Babylon in Revelation 18. First of all, there are those who believe that Babylon in Revelation 18 is a literal rebuilt city of Babylon, and incidentally, that seems to be happening. Iraq, by the way, is poised to become a very wealthy nation, one of the wealthiest on earth. Secondly, there are those who believe that Babylon in Revelation 18 may actually be a reference to the United States of America. Some years ago, Franklin Logston wrote a book called Is the USA in Prophecy? While I do not necessarily subscribe to his interpretation, it's amazing the parallels that he, he draws between the USA and Babylon. And thirdly, there are those who believe that the Babylon of Revelation 18 represents the final end-time 
world economic system. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, in Revelation 18, Babylon represents the world system of the beast, particularly in its economic and political aspects. It's my view that the Babylon of Revelation 18 is the center or hub of the world ruler's empire and that this section of scripture portrays the collapse and destruction of the commercial center of the world and of its economy. Now let's look at our text this morning, Revelation 18. We want to spend a little time here and let me just begin with the first verse, the angel, Revelation chapter 18. After these things, writes John, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Now this is no ordinary angel that is making this announcement, for this angel has great power and brilliance that radiates throughout the entire earth. When a diamond seller wants to highlight a diamond's brilliance, he presents it on a black background. God is about to do something spectacular here and it's presented in a way that no one on earth can miss it. In fact, John MacArthur writes this. He says, when he arrived, when this angel arrived, the earth was illuminated with his glory. He will make his dramatic appearance onto a darkened stage for the fifth bowl will have plunged the world into darkness, chapter 16, verse 10, manifesting the flashing brilliance of a glorious heavenly being against the blackness the angel will be an awe-inspiring sight to the shocked and terrified earth dwellers. Now we move on in verses 2 and 3 from the angel to the announcement. And notice the calamity in verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. The angel shouts, screams out loud his message of doom and destruction so that no one will miss what he is saying, that no one will be able to ignore him. Everyone will hear him as well as see him. And his message will add to the consternation and the terror that is caused by his appearance. It will be a message of woe, ill tidings for the world ruler and those who follow him. Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen. The judgment that's predicted back in chapter 14 and verse 8 will now be carried out and is spoken of here as if already completed. There's no doubt about it. Let me give you a little definition of prophecy that really has helped me. Prophecy is simply history written in advance. And it's settled, it's written, though it's not happened, it's written as if it has already happened. David Jeremiah said this, he said, it will be the wealthiest, most decadent metropolis the world has ever known. The destruction of this city by the hand of God will be done explosively, 60 minutes to ashes. That's the calamity. Let's move on to the cause in verse 2. Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. First, Babylon is judged because of her iniquity. Her character is despicable, for she has become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit. She is a city wholly given over to demonism and depravity. 
Secondly, Babylon is judged because of her influence. We go on into verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. The Babylonian system will intoxicate the people of the world with all of the riches and delicacies and pleasures that it will offer. It will cater to those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And now we move to the appeal. Two reasons are given for God's people separating themselves from the wicked world system of the beast. First of all, in verse 4, avoiding the pollution. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Note that phrase, come out of her, lest you share in her sins. Man today is so greatly concerned about environmental pollution, but he seems to be totally unconcerned about internal pollution. Paul told young Timothy, and do not share in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. There is a call to separation today that is sadly missing in today's church. You know, we are such creatures of extreme. I came to the Lord Jesus back in the 70s, and much of the church during the 70s was, had plunged into legalism. In fact, when I spoke to some people in our church, I was a brand new Christian, I said, what do I do now? And they gave me a list of things. Now you're a Christian, you don't do these things, that's, that's how you live the Christian life. Today's generation has gone way to the other extreme and we're off into license. Anything goes. There are no restrictions. The biblical model is what? Liberty. Being under control of the Holy Spirit. Being submissive to the Word of God. And that call to separate from sin is so clear today it needs to be resounded. But not only are they to avoid the pollution, they are to avoid the plagues. Look at verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. As with Sodom and Gomorrah, God engineers the removal of his own before calamity and destruction of this enormity comes upon Babylon. God has patiently put up with the wickedness of this evil system, but now the time has come for his wrath to be poured out. And before doing so, he ushers his people out of the city. Isn't it interesting that God always does that? Remember back at Sodom? God's judgment was about to be poured out. He said, Lot, got to get you out of here. I can't do anything till you're removed. 
So it is with the church before the tribulation. And now here, and by the way, these are tribulation saints. I mentioned earlier the English Standard Study Bible says this is the church. It's not the church. The church isn't here. The church isn't mentioned. In fact, the church isn't mentioned from Revelation 6 through 19. It's disappeared. It's gone. It's been taken up and out. But these tribulation saints are told to come out. Well, we move now from the appeal to the anguish, verses 9 and 10. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. There are two basic reactions to the fall of Babylon, and they are opposite reactions. There are those in verses 9 through 19 who are grieved by it, and there are those in verses 20 through 24 who are gladdened by it. Those who are grieved are those who have profited from the city's influence, from trade, from power, from its wickedness and wealth. And three groups are mentioned. First, there are the monarchs, verses 9 and 10. They are those who have formed a political and economic alliance with the beast, who have profited because of that alliance, and they will weep and mourn, literally, they, they will cry a loud lament. Not only will the monarchs, the rulers, the leaders mourn and weep, but verses 11 through 17, the merchants, the merchants of the world will weep and mourn. Now, I don't have time to read verses 11 through 17, but as you scan that, you'll just notice what a catalog of luxurious excess what a vivid picture of a great commercial city trafficking in every material luxury that the heart could possibly desire babylon's appetite and demand for uh, these commercial goods was insatiable and they continually clamored for more and more wealth and more and more of the material but now nothing is left of the city. Her giant warehouses have gone up in smoke. The fabulous markets and shopping centers are reduced to smoldering rubble. Her multi-billionaires, perhaps trillionaires, are dead. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin, and the merchants watch in horror as their investments, their inventories, and their fortunes go up in smoke. But not only do the merchants grieve and mourn, but also the mariners. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. The last group that is said to lament over Babylon's fall are the mariners. Babylon is gone and the world's trade is in ruins. David Jeremiah writes, The sea captains will watch the smoke of her burning. They will weep over the loss of their lucrative shipping trade. The city will lose its music. 
the workmen their jobs. Darkness will envelope the streets that were once brilliant with lights, theater marquees, and neon enticements. In this city where the best dressed of all the world paraded the designer fashions, the costly garments will be gone. And then he says one of the saddest statements is, the voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Verse 23. The rejoicings of a wedding, which stands for one of the highest of all human joys, will be silenced forever in the city of Babylon. Well, just as there is anguish, you'll notice that there is also applause. Verses 20 through 24. And note in verse 20, that as there is anguish on earth, there will be rejoicing in heaven. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. How important it is that we see things from heaven's perspective, from God's point of view. Heaven rejoices not over the calamity of the lost, but because of the triumph of righteousness, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elimination of those who oppose him, and the coming arrival of his kingdom. Not only do we have the rejoicing of heaven, but we have here the raising of Babylon, verses 21 and following. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. The destruction of Babylon will be complete. Notice the repetition of the words, shall not or never, depending on the translation you use, is used five times. The curtain comes down forever on this city of sin and godlessness. The language used is similar here to that of a legal document, as though God were covering the pronouncement of doom from every possible angle to leave no loophole. Babylon will never rise again. And then we have not only the rejoicing of heaven, but notice in verse 24 the reason of heaven. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. The unsaved world needs to think twice about how it treats a child of God. I'm thinking of Stephen back there in Acts chapter 7. And remember, as Stephen is being stoned, we catch a glimpse of the Lord Jesus. And if I were to ask you what Jesus is doing today, you'd probably say, well, you know, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. But in Acts 7, as Stephen is being stoned, he's not seated, he's standing. He's watching. The redeemed of heaven are worshiping, honoring, and praising God. But now they're called upon to look down upon the beast in his kingdom, that so misused and mistreated them and note its final doom. And this is cause for celebration in heaven. Now at this point in the book of Revelation, the political and economic system of the world ruler has been destroyed. All that remains is for the Lord Jesus to come from heaven 
and personally meet and defeat the beast and his armies. And this he will do. And he will establish his promised righteous kingdom on earth. At our point in history, I am noticing that the markets are not the only things that are melting down. Many of us seem to be melting down also as we witness the erosion of our retirement funds, our house values, our financial portfolio. Let me suggest two action steps that would be good for us to consider. First of all, trust the Savior. This world and its political economic system are like the Titanic. We have hit an iceberg, and the ship is going down. It appears to me that what is happening today is setting the stage for tribulation events. In fact, our response to this financial crisis is probably going to make it far worse rather than better. We've hit an iceberg. The ship is going down, and those who survived the Titanic were those who got into a lifeboat. And God sent his only son, Jesus the Messiah, to save us from the penalty of our sin and to rescue us from the wrath to come. Even as Noah entered the ark and was saved from the great flood, so Jesus Christ is God's lifeboat that offers deliverance from a sinking planet. Trust the Savior, my friend, and secondly, trust the supplier. Our currency says, in God we trust. But I suspect that most of us have put our trust in our own financial resources rather than in God. Have we forgotten some of the following scriptures? Matthew chapter 6, where we're told not to lay up treasure on earth, but to store up treasure where? In heaven? Have we forgotten about Philippians 4, 19, about who the real supplier is, who's going to take care of us? Have we forgotten about Hebrews 13, 5 and our call to be content with what we have? James chapter 5, the warning to those who are rich in the last days. For some reason, if you serve with the friends of Israel, people assume you're an expert. I was uh, in a church one time and had a discussion period afterwards and the lady said, she said, now, because of your expertise on the economy, what would you suggest we do with our money? <laughs> I wanted to say give it to me, but I didn't. <laughs> but folks, the only place I know of that our investments are truly safe is in heaven. And since we can't take it with us, and many of us were living as if we were going to take it with us, and since it's going to be taken from us, why are we so reluctant to invest what we have where it will pay eternal dividends? I'm going to close with a quote from a Jewish man by the name of Joel Rosenberg. Joel says this, Finally, let us consider the possibility that the Lord is allowing this economic meltdown in part to shake our confidence in anything but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Is it possible that God is trying to shake us loose from trusting in our own wealth, from trusting in our own political leaders, from trusting in our own ingenuity and our own hard work? 
Is it possible that he is trying to get us to shift our focus from worldly, materialistic things to how much he loves us and the truth that the only person who we can truly trust in life to never leave us or forsake us is Jesus Christ? Is it possible that he is trying to get us to read the Bible more and the stock tickers less, to pray more and to worry less, to store up our treasures in heaven and not concentrate so much on our treasures on earth? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your throne recognizing that you are the God who supplies all the needs of those who belong to him. And in these difficult, disheartening times, we realize that you are sovereign, you are in control, and your prophetic calendar is right on schedule. And Lord, it appears that you are setting the stage for events that we read about in the book of Revelation that will take place during the tribulation period. And if we read the, the signs of the times correctly, how near your son's coming must truly be. And so, Lord, in light of his coming, may we invest in your kingdom. May we serve you with all of our hearts and with all that you have entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen.